30 years old, 40 years 25 or older, but they were the most interesting and the most valuable people. Either. Such people in photography today don't even exist. And then the school changed to a normal kind of a university. I don't know how, what happened there. And, and, and they had to behave like any other university. And very little of what happened there before is left. And the students, when get there, they are most superficial kind of a situation. We're kind of at a very young. So the students now, just like college-age students, yes. primarily? College, young, a little bit older, but mostly very young, and very uninteresting. In the, in the earlier period, were the, were the people mostly just working at some other job? I mean, they weren't, they weren't photographers in any They were both. They also were photographers. And then many became photographers. Did, would they become commercial photographers? One became a <coughs> one of them was Ray Jacobs, who was a furrier and a real estate man, and came to me after one course and he said, "Do you think I should give all that up and become a photographer?" And in general, I would never say yes or no. That's none of my business. But he was tall and handsome and excellent. I mean, very gifted. And I said, "Why don't you try that?" And he went there into then in first into photojournalism, where unfortunately. They did not recognize his capacities because he could have been a wonderful one. And then publicity advertising, where he made $130,000, $150,000 a year. Then went into the movies, and now has the Earth Shoes. Well, he's a distributor? He's the owner of the Earth Shoes. And all that, but he's going to go back to movies and photography one day. That, for instance, one example. Now he's a fairly recent student, is he not? No, no. Oh. He came into my first course. Uh, are there others who become photographers? Yes, but I forgot her name. <coughs> what kind of a... Uh, for instance, one became a photographer whose name is Arthur Levine, who is then the chief of photographers in a bank, and one young woman whose name I have forgotten, Mildred Grossman, became a photographer. No, that's, that's not Sid, Sid Grossman's wife. No. <coughs> her name's also Mildred, I think. Or yes. Gee, I can't stand that. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. And authors came as photographers, you see. Did, did Danny Lyons ever take a course from you? Do you know Who? Danny Lyons? Do you know him? Who's that? Well, uh, he's a photographer who did uh, done a, oh, a couple of different projects, one on motorcycle gangs. Did one no, on no, no, no. That, was, that was written somewhere. That is not true. He never studied with me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's no. why I wondered, because I had seen it, I yeah. thought, somewhere. Yeah. Or anybody like Winogrand or any of those people? God forbid me. <laughs> did you but ever have students come in, in your courses here that, that uh, I mean, how did you select the students? Did you ever turn people away? Oh, yes. How, I mean, what were your reasons? Generally? I turned them away in the new school, too. You have interviews with them? With the Always. And sometimes you have to turn them away because they simply, you see, the reason I have interviews is that I can see them and I can speak to them also, because sometimes they are not right for the class, and the class is not right for them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're pictorialists, and I know that pictorialists don't get out of pictorialism. Sometimes they do, but and sometimes they photograph so badly that it is impossible to follow that course, you see. Sometimes the mentality is something completely different, and they're absolutely conventional and they're commercial, but they don't even know it. And I know that this is not for the class. I have to always see what one can do for them, but also what they can do in a class, in which way they can cooperate and make a course. You see, this is a way to select one of this kind, one of this kind, one of this kind, so that the class is very varied, and all kinds of directions, all kinds of mentalities come in, so that one stimulates the other. And this time, uh, last time, now this time here, they were incredibly gifted students. Hmm. Last semester, they were impossible. The ones you just interviewed were gifted. Yeah, they were absolutely wonderful. I don't know how that is possible, but it was. So do you, you sort of expect the students to be at a certain level of development so you can even work with them? Yes, but it doesn't always mean that they have to have photographed a long time. Right. Yeah. Also, for instance, there is sometimes a beginner who is extremely valuable and, and not spoiled yet. And for instance, I turned away a student, a Japanese, came to show me photographs if we had time and I could ever find them. And he brought photographs and they are out of this world. Every photograph was a poem. Didn't speak English at all. Yeah. 
And I said to him, what do you want to learn here? You should not take a course. You just go on photographing. No course for you. I don't want that. Uh, he, he wants to become an American photographer. And I said, now this is the end of you. And then he said, I said, I will not have you in any class. Just go on photographing, and after several months, come and see me. And then he said, well, I'm taking five courses at the new school. I said, if you take five courses, you better come here, because then maybe I can do something. And then the class admired his photographs endlessly, but he started to photograph like an American journalist. Yeah. And I said, under no circumstances, the class screamed against him. Mm -hmm. And he really came out of that course and then thanking me that I had prevented him from abandoning his own way. Mm. And I bought several photographs, so he's very poor. And then he wanted to come in another class. And I said, I don't want you in a class. <laughs> now, this, if he comes a third time, I will have him, because he's absolutely phenomenal. Mm. And others I turned down because they are corrupt in their photography. They are fashion photographers and commercial photographers, and they say they want to come to their own way of photographing. Don't you believe it? Sometimes they do want it, most of the time they don't. And then I have the feeling that isn't possible. And sometimes I take them in and nothing comes out. may have seen a few of your pictures. Very few. And, yes, right, and, and think that uh, what they want to do is learn to photograph like Lisa Modell. No. In San Francisco that happened. And what, I was you, the first time there. What do you tell us? <coughs> well, it happens this way. They had my photographs, but I didn't know that, or I did. And then I started to teach, and then they came in with photographs that looked like men, and I said to myself, God damn it. I always think that only I see that, but now I can see everybody else sees the same thing. And Ansel Adams passed by, took a photograph of a student, and said, was a good photograph of yours, Lisette? And I said, I never did this photograph. And then I became very nervous, and I said to them, did you photograph before that way too? She said, not at all. As long as we are studying with you, we thought we should photograph like you, you know? <laughs> but I had to get that one out of their noodle. But people in general are not <coughs> influenced by my photography. <coughs> You, you don't you, you don't show any of your work at all in the Not courses? at all. Absolutely not. What ever, am I going to say? Do you ever show work of other photographers? Oh, yes. Yeah. Who do you generally show? Whatever is necessary. Mm. You see, for instance, when I will speak about objective and subjective food photography, then I will, for instance, take photographs by Nancy Rex-Ross and photograph by these Japanese photographers, which are very subjective, you know, and personal. And then I will show a Sanders and an Abbott mm -hmm. and see. Contrast the... You see, this is what is meant. You have it here in pictures. Or when I want to show something which is in a photojournalistic style, but goes into a completely poetic and different direction, then I will take, for instance, Cartier-Bresson and show these tremendous rhythms which are in his photographs and, and so forth. Or I will then want to show something about movement in photography or action, sharp or unsharp, you see. And then I will take newspaper photographs and cut out photographs. Or when I will show something about perspective, then I will select from newspapers, from books, photographs, which are especially concerned with perspective and show that. So it is always connected with a photographic problem and never with a purely Look at this great photographer, not at all. They should photograph. They see much too much. Do you ever, uh, when you go on a field trip or uh, someplace, do you ever go, do you ever take a camera and, and no, go never, shooting never, ever. students? Absolutely impossible. I could never uh, work with students and photograph myself. My no. wife did that. So you, you always you have always gone out alone. Photographing, yes. Let me let me
five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. curious if, if you have ever seen anything in your students' work that was maybe very raw or they were not in control of the, that, um, that you then internalized and, and used yourself in your own Never. photography? Never. You know, there is one thing about me, and I don't know if it is good or bad, it could be both, and that is I'm I cannot be influenced. I may want it. When I saw first Helen Levitt's photographs, they impressed me very much, and I, I liked them a great deal. What I like also about them is that I am always very close. I take close-ups, you know, close-up photography. But what she did was always at 10 feet distance, at least, and a group of people, the background, the houses, the streets, and all that, and I was fascinated by it. And I said to myself, this is what I want to do, too, of course, in my own way. So I took my camera out for several weeks and tried to photograph in this kind of a distance. Never, ever could do it. Not possible. But then there are artists and people who can be influenced and learn. But I can't. Do you feel um, that you're still essentially photographing today the way you were when you began, in that sense? I have the feeling there are so many new things and ideas I want to photograph that I don't know myself anymore. And, you know, ideas is one thing and photographing is another. Yeah. But certainly, I have the feeling, too, that I, I will photograph again people and go out and look for certain kinds of people which are, are interested. But then, of course, many other things. I mean, let me put it this way, because <coughs> you talk about not, in a sense, being immune to influence. Uh, in this way, and I'm wondering, do you feel that you could possibly, not that you will, but that you could go out tomorrow and make a photograph like one of the Riviera gamblers? If I find the type, yes. I think this this is like the window displays, like a window reflection, is something that will never end. As long as the material presents itself to you, you that I can that I have the feeling I can always do. And I'm always interested. Yeah. Okay, Once in a while. I see somebody in the street, and I said to myself, God damn it, where is this camera? You know, this is yeah. unbelievable. That's just, it is as if it were just for me, you see. That I can do. There's no, and that I'm always fascinated by. But you don't find very often this type of people I photograph. Yeah. Here is a difficulty. I cannot go out and photograph anybody. And that was a difficulty with the assignments, that they were not at all. What I needed. Uh -huh. um, there's this uh, story that we, we heard uh, from, I think it was one of your former students. I, I asked you about uh, yesterday a little bit, which was uh, they said that, that you had a, you, you said a very kind of poetic thing about light entering people's eyes and the different ways that that different people see the same thing. Well, that is another situation. And that is a long thing about in which way the eye sees and which way the camera sees. Mm. And that you can, you see the retina in the eye and the lens in the eye even if eyes are normal, are approximately the same thing. So if you put, for instance, in front of a person, a table, and, and some object there, and you would photograph what the retina sees, it would be exactly identical in 30 different people's eyes. And when you take 30 cameras of the same make, and you put it in front of the same subject matter, it will, it will be identical. But what happens when, we, when one looks at something, the moment the image hits the retina and connects with the nervous system to the brain, it is then the person with all its experiences of life and age and intelligence and knowledge and consciousness who will see and 
and feel this situation in a different way. And then by seeing it already differently, we'll then have to take this camera, which is mechanical, and through all the means of exposure and of what distance and what <coughs> angle and what development and what exposure and what printing make out of that your picture of what is there and not the picture which is mechanical in the retina and not the picture which is mechanical in the camera. <coughs> this kind of a process. Then I would always point out that people in general who photograph, they do not really identify what they see or only in a very superficial way they will feel it. <coughs> and when they have looked at this and then take a kind of a reflex camera where the picture is already projected in two dimensions, they will not see then the difference between what happens here and what happens there, what happens through the eye image and what happens in this image. And only when you size up this and this can you then work on it in order to get the impression you have and make the photograph. And that is, of course, extremely fast. It's not a conscious thing that happens? Partially and partially not. And when I speak about that, I make a very, very elaborate kind of a presentation of the eye, how the eye is built. Because I read once a book about the eye, which fascinated me, in which we all the animals see in a different way. Do you just talk, or do you have a you show well, I have a little drawing, you see, to, to design the eye, but it is fast. I can't draw, you see, in which way the birds see, in which way vertebrae see, in which way um, animals see where the pupil is moving, the pupil is not moving. And one also knows to a certain degree what, in which way uh, a dog sees, and in which way, I don't know, the forms, the one sees only the forms, the other one also the motion, and then comes the monkeys and then who see much more in order to come to that. And in which when I developed, you see, from, from the amoeba, which is always light sensitive, the amoeba is all eye, you see. And then comes a spot, and then comes a protected spot by a kind of a, I don't know what they have over there. Membrane. <coughs> a kind of a membrane. And then an optical system develops, and so forth. And then comes a human eye, which in the beginning was only a kind of a matter of survival, to see who comes toward it, the danger, shooting animal, hunting, nourishing, and so forth. And then later on, became a terrific thing, and in the future, probably much more. They say, for instance, that today, the eye is not adequate anymore to what is demanded, that they are wearing eyeglasses, and that the eye will develop in much bigger way, you know, with space and with all that. So that is all these things, you see. You mustn't forget that when I started to teach, I'd never read a book about photography, and I never had. In other words, if I wanted to do something in kitchen, I had to invent all that. And find out. And then I wasn't so sure about what the hell I was talking about. And it took a long time until I found my way. And always came from the experience of photographing. This were my experiences in which way I saw, in which way I didn't see, in which way I couldn't find perspective. What was it that I saw a picture one way, and in the photograph nothing came out? Didn't came out because I didn't know what I saw, not with the eyes and not with the camera. Oh, this crap. Much better to take a photograph, believe it or not. <laughs> what you need that for? It's an interesting insight, I think, anyway, although you're right. Uh, I've always been interested in that kind of learning. There's a, there's a wonderful book, which may be one of the books you've read, uh, which is the book that I read about it. It's called uh, Eye and Brain by a man named Gregory. No. no. It's a sort of a recent book. Never read that. And uh, it's much the same, talking about the retina and the brain. Oh, really? It's too bad, darling, because he, I invented it first. <laughs> well, he's a scientist. You see? But I'm not. And my experience comes directly from photographing. Whenever did I see perspective? Why is it that I found out that three dimensions and two dimensions are not the same? When I saw something with my eyes and there was distance in between and I took a photograph and suddenly it was not there. Everything was clinging to the other side and I had to find out. 
But you know, it's unbelievable how superficial people photograph. They don't see, they don't feel, and they don't look in the camera, they don't look there. They just shoot around, imitate others, and want to project themselves. Nothing comes out of that. This is why there are very few photographers. possible to, to deal with the, with the uh, aesthetic or uh, emotional aspects of photography separately from the technical things or no. to teach no. it separately? Well, you see, <clears throat> we have to find out what it is a normal kind of a development of film, an overdevelopment and underdevelopment. A normal exposure of a, of a film and underdeveloped overdeveloped film, an exposed film. These are things I think finally one has to find out and know very well. Not everyone is able to do it, but one has, by seeing the film, you have to know what that is and what that gives when you want to print. Thank you. And then, in which with the different papers. But that is always connected with what you want to get. And when you really want to get something, Believe it or not, you find out. Maybe this is a good time um, to, we, we, we've referred to her, but we really ought to talk a little directly about Diane Arbus. She's one, of course, of your best known students. And we were talking about her dinner and so on, but since we've been talking about her teaching. And I just wondered what, also, of course, she became, as you were saying, a, great friend of yours, which uh, is, of course, not typical, obviously, of your students. And I just wondered... Um, oh, many of my friends became very great friends. My students became very great friends. And I just wondered what um, what it was like uh, when you first met her, when she first came into your class. Uh, do you have a memory of, of that? Uh, mm -hmm. what, was, she, was she separated from Victor then? From who? From, from, wasn't that her husband, Victor? Alan. Alan. No, not at that time. What is that? She called up one day and she said, could you tell me what your course is all about? And I said, yes. And I told her as much one can say. And then a couple of days later, she called up again and she said, could you tell me some more about your course? Well, I said, you know, I can tell you a little bit. This and I repeated one thing and maybe something else. Okay. And then she called a third time. Could you tell me what your course is all about and tell me more about it? And I said, I'm terribly sorry, you shouldn't come. And that's when she came. <laughs> and then I said, the course has, it, has a life of its own. You know, I can't describe it in advance. And then when she came and they had to pay in advance, she took up her checkbook and she said, could I see a couple of your photographs? But she knew my photographs. That's why she came. I said, no, you can't. It's your photographs, not mine. And then she brought in photographs, which were so fragmented and so irrational that I said to my husband, I don't believe that this is a photographer. Maybe she should go to your painting class. She had, for instance, a picture like this. And she had a habit of taking a piece of paper, you know, a rectangle, and stretch it, photographic paper. She did that to the end. And stretching it? Yeah. If that was a piece of paper, she did this and printed on a piece like that. Oh, she just tear it and use yeah, it? Yeah, all kinds of stuff. And she would have, for instance, a picture of that size and, and their half of a head, you know and almost grain and grain and grain. After all, she came from Madison Avenue, you know? Or a, I remember, for instance, a balloon who was flying up hard sharp and everything else was unsharp. And then she wrote a very beautiful photograph of one of her children, but everything else was, let's say, pathological. She also looked like a person who was 
a before or after nervous breakdown. You know? How would you describe her appearance? I mean, I, I never saw her. Well, she was very beautifully built, and at that time, 33 years old, and had a small, extremely sensitive face, but very gray, mm. you know, skin, without any makeup and so forth and so forth. And she spoke in an almost inaudible way. You couldn't, you couldn't hear her. And between one word and the other, there was an endless pause. Hmm. So <coughs> one day I said to her, you know, there are two kinds of originality. And that was on television also when she was dead. I said that too. They asked me to say something. And the one is when somebody, in whatever art he's working, brings something so new that the nervous system is not adjusted to it, and one cannot recognize it. The ears don't understand it, the eyes don't understand it. And these are sometimes great contributors. They bring something that wasn't there before. But then, at the same time, there can be people who also do something which is completely uncomprehensive, but that is pure hysteria and fantasy and has nothing to do with any reality in this kind of an art form. So she said, that is the first time in my life that I hear such a thing because I was educated in the, in the school of ethical culture or something of that kind. And whatever a child did was a genius. Whatever it was, it was a genius. So I never knew that there was something good and something bad and something true and something false. And that made a tremendous change. And little by little in this course, she became more and more real and also more and more photographic. And then when it was the first field trip, she came over to me, very pale, and she said, I cannot photograph. And I said, why not? And she said, because what I want to photograph is evil. And I said, if it's evil what you want to photograph, you have to photograph it, because in your life, and you're not going to photograph anything, you don't get this evil out of your system. So just go ahead and photograph what you think is evil. And then, she started to photograph her subject matters, you see, I mean, homosexuals, and lesbians, and things like this. <coughs> but it never was really evil. It was sick, but not evil. Mm -hmm. But then, little by little, she became a fantastic student. And I think that never in my life have I seen anybody work. Another one is working that way, and that is Rosalind Solomon, who is developing now into an extraordinary photographer. And she was then absolutely obsessed, and after three months, there was her own style was there, you see. After the first three months, you were... Three months, oh, definitely so. And we also became very great friends, but she was sitting in courses and she was crying, you see, because what I said was she, you see, and not the word, not one word was lost on her. Whatever was said, whatever was suggested, was tried out, was done, you see. And that's the way she developed. And then the next year she took another course, and in between, of course, I gave her lessons, I mean, she brought her work, and I saw it, that's a course, that's a course. And after, between the first two courses, she moved to Charles Street, which was quite new. Yes, and she came and she showed me her work and so forth. Her daughter wrote an article about that completely distorted it, completely ruined it. Her daughter is very jealous. This is Dune? Dune as an impassive person. And and I let her have it for that. But Diane certainly became one of the most extraordinary friends I've ever had. And so that was that. Yeah, we, we have a few extra slides of, of her work, uh, which we brought along because we thought it might be good to, to look at some of that those pictures. And Let's see. You might be a good person to. Well, best. Could you give me my bag so that I have? Yes, oh yes. David, why don't you These courses that, that uh, she had with you, were those at the new school? No, that was private. Private.
this was just get uh, it's the number three oh, tray. We might slide projector where it's better. With the slides here, let me just put the first back. Same here, Dan. Hold on to the whole thing. Where did you get these? Oh, just these were made, I think, just from the the book that was published. Uh, I believe that's where they're from. These are yeah, roughly chronological yeah. order. You see, this is this you took when she was in one of my courses. The boy with the hanger. Yeah, I think so. Now, did she always work with a with a, a Rolleiflex or that type no, of a camera? See, no, as a matter of fact, that couldn't have been taken during my course because she did not work at that time with a Rolleiflex. She worked with thirty-five. Mamiaflex. She, she had a Mamiaflex, and first she worked with a Pentax, and then she worked with a Nikon probably, and then she worked with a Rolleif, wide-angle Rolleif. Uh huh. So the square ones were ones she would have taken after. That's right. After. Well, in fact, I think I know the data. I think this is like 63, which exactly. is already <coughs> almost 10 years later. Yeah, this boy is very perturbed. Yeah, that are these marvelous pictures of the dwarves. Now, how did, how did she meet these people? That's one of the mystifying things, is how she was able to connect with all these people. Yeah, if she did. You see, she went into this free kind of a show, and there she met one and another. She was endlessly gifted for that. She was a writer, and she took a newspaper, and in this newspaper she looked, and then she found her scenes, and all kinds of pornographic newspapers and extravagant things, and she found out this, and she found out that. She had a great talent for that. It's almost like a detective. No, she, you know, there are people who direct themselves by reading about this, by reading about that. You can take a newspaper and find out a hundred thousand things, but you can go and follow Yeah, I know that picture. And this is, it's funny because um, uh, you could almost say it's, it's like one thinks typically of her work of the very, like you were saying, extravagant types, you know, of the, you know, the homosexuals or the, or the midgets. Yeah, but there were other things too. But here's, here's a very... Uh, For instance, there is a picture hanging in the museum, which is one of the very beautiful ones she has done. And it is a room in a lobby of a hotel, mm -hmm. absolutely simple, with a window here and a beautiful window with light there, and then, then a kind of a radiator on this side. And on one side is sitting a very average woman of a hotel lobby, and she was just sitting there. It's one of the, one of the best pictures she's ever taken. I'm wondering if it, if it would be, uh, I mean, how, this is a, a very basic question, it may be difficult to answer, but well, how would you characterize what it is about her work that's special, really? I mean, uh, obviously something is. You see, I don't want to say certain things. Well? If you turn that off, I say it. Well, okay. Because you see, there are things one well. wants to have said, because The reason why I don't say that is that her children are alive, that Marvin is alive, yeah. and that I do know that they do not see it, but yeah, yeah. I do. I've talked it over with several therapists. Now that, for instance, is a very beautiful picture. I apologize for the mon montage here, but I couldn't resist putting that slide right before this one. And that, of course, is a man who has become a woman, or as the opposite, I don't know. Did, did you see anything in her work that indicated that she was working herself out of this, that it was getting better for her? When she came first, she was very sick and very weak. And photography was an incredible satisfaction for her. And she could leave everything out and at the same time produce something of value. And that made her much stronger. You see. And much more satisfied. Besides that, she was extremely ambitious and she wanted to be she wanted to be unique and she wanted to be the greatest and she wanted to be an extraordinary kind of thing all her life. She also had a great power drive. 
that did that change then as as you knew her and as her work grew? You see, on the one hand, I felt that she became a much more wonderful person and much stronger. And on the other hand, she had these terrific relapses of depressions. And I always felt that she was tremendously progressing and that she may overcome it. And I never in my life thought that she would commit suicide in spite of the fact that so many times or several times she was very close to it and one time I definitely think I had, I had avoided it by calling up Marvin Israel whom I didn't know and by saying to him you can't leave her alone that's out of the question this is a dangerous situation and he didn't believe me but it was she had said something to you that made you think that I recognized things he didn't know and every time she was in a very uh, strong state of depression I called up a friend of mine who was a great therapist and got advice and said to him if you don't get in touch with her psychoanalyst I will get in touch and then he took it seriously wrote me a beautiful letter about that. Well, here you are. Practically all of her pictures are very uh, frontal. You know, they're very, they're very close. Very, they're very, di direct. very direct. Very, and then the simplicity, you see. You see, about her pictures, I can say a lot. Now you see here is, for instance, something where she always would say, no, aren't they wonderful, aren't they wonderful, they are extraordinary, they are so beautiful. Yeah, yeah not exactly that way. Her perceptions then of the, of the pictures were not always, uh, or were frequently not the same as yours. No, but I would never tell her. Your basic interest was what to encourage her, essentially. Not encouragement. She had to live her life, and she had to do to do what she could do. And I, God forbid, would not interfere. That I do with everybody. Yeah. And she did it so marvelously well that. Yeah. Could she have stopped photographing? Well, if she would have stopped photographing, that would have been very good. You think so? Yeah, it doesn't seem like she could have. I mean, it seems like there would be no she reason to do that, you know. There would not be reason anything. There wouldn't be any reason to live. I guess this is what, from a mental institution in New Jersey somewhere that she... Somehow, I don't. I can't imagine how they let her into photograph. I can't imagine how she could ever arrange that. But she did, obviously. I don't think it's too difficult. Well, she must have been very persuasive in, in a lot of cases. She must have been very persuasive, a very good talker, a very engaging person when she wanted to. Well, I have the feeling maybe, you see, she would also, in connection with the homosexual and all these people, she would, for instance, want them to work with physicians and make and introduce herself this way to work together with scientific projects and with medical projects. I have a student who does that. Ah. He works with these people who are not transsexuals, but uh, the ones who change sex. And he works with psychiatrists and with surgeons, and this is a way he can do what he wants. Yeah, no, I think transsexuals, that is a word. Yeah. Hmm. This is the last one I have. I think this is one of, one of the last things she did, I'm not sure. No, that is not so. No? Because you see, several years maybe she went back, but she showed me these pictures uh, two or three years before in, in, his, in her studio over no. there. All of these pictures. Yeah. And also in the museums that said she photographed 10 years, she photographed 15 years. So it's not correct. Well, she and her husband were involved with photography before she ever started to do what she's known for now. Sure. He was a fashion photographer and she assisted him. And she was sort of what, helped drum up ideas for things? And no, that probably too. But she was the one who arranged the model and put all these things together, you see, for the picture. She never took the picture. But certainly many of the ideas were hers, no doubt. Yeah, she certainly knew something yeah. about photography. Yeah. Yeah. What, 
Go ahead. She had, she was inventive, you see. And when she left him as a assistant, he was very, very unhappy. Not only unhappy, but he really, really didn't want to do it anymore. He became an actor. Yeah. Yeah, very gifted actor in Hollywood. Hmm. After after uh, she finished the courses with you and became friends, how often would you see each other? We talked a great deal on the phone. And it wasn't that I saw her so often, but it was that there was a terrific connection there. And also this last couch you wrote for me. Maybe I'll find it, I can show it to you. I haven't found anything in my room now. That is really Very important friend. Um, this came with this card. Yeah. This just it's just by itself. Just says dearly said. That is the most beautiful letter of hers I ever got. See how big she writes, dear, he said. That means it doesn't have to be put into words. It's just, I'm here, and you're there. I mean, it was always thank you. That card I got after she was dead. Oh, it was in the mail? Yeah. And it says here, goodbye and good luck. She was a card writer. Did she send cards frequently? Hmm? She sent cards frequently? Yeah. And then, be happy, Diana. Hmm. And she wrote every letter in a different handwriting. Hmm? Mm -hmm. The one is printed and the other one's script. In eight handwritings. Yeah, she wrote in eight handwriting. And Israel, when he came to see me after, he would, for instance, say that the, the great grief of the daughter's wife was that she didn't write a word to anybody. And I said, well, except for the cards she wrote to her friends, because I had the feeling that this was a card she wrote just to everybody. And he said, there is no, there is no 
such a thing. We have gone through everything. We have called up every friend she knows, every friend we know. There is nothing. And he said, can I come down and see that? And I said, yes. And then he looked at this, and he said, that is not her handwriting. And then I said, how do you imagine that I had such a card? Well, he had no answer for that. Suicide. Oh my goodness, That's a joke, this car. And this is just printed, yeah. And then she would write, for instance, this way. You see? Small letter script. Yeah, but it's a completely different signature. Every psychiatrist knows that this is schizophrenia. And then in the beginning, when she came to my course, and that I will have a special time. She will write, for instance, something like this, with a completely different handwriting. <laughs> and that was very helpful for me after a while when I wanted to identify something. Yeah, but yeah. in the beginning, when she came to my course, there was something like, I'm so impatient all my life. This is only a, a 50th of the letter she has written to me. There's, a, there's another. It's sure, it's another one. And the one I wanted really to show to you is. Where the hell do I have When she came to my course, she wrote this way. How many messages? That is when she was terribly ill. Yeah, really teeny, teeny, teeny. I'm getting better at wishing. wishing. Or you have helped me. Or you have helped me. Almost no space between the words. And then here. Looks like a typewriter at first what glance. What a beautiful photograph that is. The one in the Museum of Modern Art, mine. You see, that is very ill. Hmm. So now, that goes on. I wouldn't want that. Very careful when I talk about Diane, because I have the feeling. So when. When that happened, and Israel said, this is not her handwriting, well, I knew it was her handwriting, of course. I got somewhat disturbed. I don't know why. And I said to myself, well, and suddenly I had the idea, a graphologist. Mm -hmm. And I called up the new school, always has very good teachers in graphologists, but I didn't know him. And I called him up, I found out, and I said, can you recognize from six or seven different handwritings the one, if the si a signature, if it is or isn't of the same person? And he said, in court, I could only guarantee for 95% when there are eight handwritings or seven handwritings. And he said, show them to me. And I brought them over, and this man had never heard either of her nor of me. Mm -hmm. And he looked at these handwritings, and he said, after a while, yeah. That is definitely her handwriting. There cannot be any doubt about it. And then he said, but she was an extraordinary woman. And in the beginning, she was very, very sick. And then she got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And I said, yes, this is why I didn't recognize that she would commit suicide, because a year before, she was very weak and very desperate. And the, the last time I saw her, she was blooming and strong and coming from the beach and looking magnificent. And I said to her, what the matter with you? In three weeks, you're going to be over that. That's nothing in comparison to last year. And there is when I made a mistake. And the mistake was that I did not know that people commit suicide when they are strong. 
and not when they are weak. Every psychologist, every psychiatrist, everybody knows that. Not when they are weak. When they have a temporary... And I said to her, Diane, this is nothing. In three weeks they are over it. And when she left, I had the feeling she was disappointed. And I watched her when she was waking, walking away, and I said to myself, this time I didn't do anything for her, but she doesn't need it. She is strong, she has a psychoanalyst, everybody is around, you know. And then this graphologist said, and there is one thing she wanted from the beginning to the end all her life. And I said, what was that? to die, because she knew that the damage of the brain would go on and on and on. And I have the feeling she knew that, that she would never get out of it. So you can see in these two things I showed you, the relationship, and the, the real great love that was there. I'm wondering, given that you had this amazing love and friendship, and the incredible intensity of, uh, of her life and her emotions and your feelings for each other, um, did you, I'm, I'm thinking now about this, this story of the, of the clairvoyant that you told us at, at dinner. Did you experience anything uh, after her death? Any feeling of, of closeness with her? Any kind of tie? I would say yes. That was the only time in my life, and even with my husband, I don't feel it yet. But very often when something good happened to me, I had the feeling Diane is doing that. Because she had developed in an incredible human being. At the beginning, she was selfish. She was selfish. She didn't do anything. And one day she called up and she said, I'm doing that only for you because I'm not a good doer. And then I said to her, Diane, there is no such a stupid thing. In this life, there is destruction and cooperation and these are natural laws. And you watch the elephants. When a danger comes, the, the babies come in the middle, the older around, and the ones which are strong, they defend the others. That is not good doing. That is a natural law. And she learned that. And she became really helpful and did a lot of things for people. You know, Diane was a great learner. And Berenice always said, somebody who can learn that is a talent is to be able to learn. And that was that. But it was, you see, I mean, my sister, to whom I had talked maybe two, three times about Diane, not more, she told me that every time you talked about Diane, I realized that you did not know the amount of brain damage there was already. Because my sister had lived in hospitals for years. And she tells you, be happy. And she did it courageously and just take it. It was a terrible shock. One of the worst shocks in my life. And so that was that. And you see, it was when I went to the museum and when I saw the show that I realized in which way her illness was projected into every single photograph. Because there are artists who are neurotic and there are all kinds of things, but they are not neurotic in what they do. They are neurotic in their lives, but not in what they are producing. But in her case, it's projected. What, what do you think that does to the value of those photographs? I will tell you frankly that my involvement and with my liking her and her photographs very much keeps me away to a certain degree from being objective. Mm. Berenice would know that much better. But Berenice likes her photographs very much and she feels she's an excellent photographer and that she was photographing pathology. This is correct. But she was also photographing her own pathology. She was not like a singer who will sing in an opera the area of an insane woman. 
in order to see the area of an insane woman, you have to be completely sane. Because if you're insane, you're not going to bring out one note. Like Nijinsky, when he was insane, he couldn't make a step anymore, he couldn't dance. And I have the feeling very soon that would have stopped her from photographing. When she saw me the last time, she said, I don't want to photograph people anymore. And then I gave her another idea. I always knew what she needed. And I said, why don't you photograph furniture and objects? And she was immediately enthusiastic. In other words, when it came to Diane, I knew immediately what to do. Strange kind of a relationship, of course. What it does objectively to the photographs, I do not know. I think a lot. But most people are so neurotic and psychopathic that they don't even see that. I don't see what it is. Did you see this last card? Belongs to the most beautiful things anybody can ever do. And of course, great jealousy from doing and from. Well, let me just ask this, because I don't understand. What, what is the relation of Marvin Israel to, um, to the situation? I mean, which situation? Diana. He was her lover for many years, for certain years. And he behaved in the most incredible way, you see. He stopped working and painting and took over Diane's work for exhibition for this and for that and literally created all the atmosphere of success and of articles and so forth. And everything was for the children. He never took one cent for what kind of thing. And the father didn't do anything. He was probably right. And the, woman, the, the daughter is a bitch. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. When did, when did you first meet him, after you met Diane? I met him very soon, because when she was, after three months or two months, when she was so happy, she gave a big party in her house and introduced him and her friends and so forth. And I was in excellent terms with him. He's a very fine man, very beautiful, very sensitive. And she loved him forever. I never could understand why these people divorce. So that's that. Do I have this card somewhere? I, I think you already took the card back. Um, you had that out of the first. I would have put my drawer in order yesterday. I would have never found anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, why, why don't you, uh, if you want to put those back, and then we can, one, maybe one other real thing we can do, and then we will. Wait a minute. I don't know if I have this card. No, I think you have the card in there already. I, I think you made two trips. Is it in there? For instance, I would never say to Israel, don't you know that she was a schizophrenic and mentally ill, because he himself is so crazy that he never will understand that. Yeah, the, the, the thing about, about this interview and this tape is, like we said before, um, this is a good time to say it. Yeah, I'd like to just remind you that, that no one but Jim and I and the person who's going to transcribe it are going to see this, read it, hear it, or anything until, until you get it back, and you I listen to it, it, you see it, you approve it, correct it, whatever you want to do we to may, it. We may say, you know, there are things, we may, we, you may look at it and you may say, well, there are things that I said that I don't want anyone to read, and which should be closed for 20, 20 years. 20 years. 
Oh, the whole thing shouldn't be read before I'm dead. What for? You know, whatever. You know. What? What for? But the the, the the thing that I want to get to is that there may be things that you in really want to say and would really like to have somewhere down in the record the way you want to say them, as opposed to the way somebody else is going to make up the way you felt about Diane or, or the things that happened. Um, you don't want them publicized now or for 10 years or 20 years, but eventually you, you, know, you may want these things in your words, the way you feel them, in the record. And this is one way to do that and um, have control over it and not you know, see it in print uh, tomorrow all jumbled up or something. Um, so that this is a thing we can t we will talk about more when we come back. You know, yeah, and this is this is not to try and you know make you say anything that you don't want to say on the tape recorder. It's just to 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 say.